It is good to be back in South Bend. A week ago, my wife and I went up into a part of the United States we'd never been before. We went to um, the Black Hills of South Dakota and saw Mount Rushmore and uh, Crazy Horse Memorial. And uh, we went to Deadwood, South Dakota and saw where Wild Bill Hickok was shot and killed and saw his grave in Calamity Jane's, which is right next to it, and Calamity Jane should have been Celebrate Recovery from what I learned. <laughs> she was a heavy drinker, and somebody had actually left small whiskey bottles on her grave as a tribute. I'm not sure I want that as my legacy, but it was good to see beautiful parts of God's creation there, but it's also good to be back. One of the things I noticed this morning is I was sitting on the front row watching the praise band. I noticed Paul playing the drums uh, and all the activity, especially in that first song. Uh, he, Sarah, he has expended more than enough calories to have twice his lunch this afternoon. Um, the last time I moved that quick, it was because of a bad taco. But anyway... <laughs> I did find out a while ago that Paul's smartwatch keeps track of the number of steps and his drumming increases the number of steps. And I guess Sarah doesn't accept that count. But anyway, uh, it's good to be back. We are beginning a new series this morning uh, called Rediscovering Our Roots. And it's a study of the book of Acts. And I know that a lot of you in this audience weren't even born when the uh, television series Roots came out based on a book by Alex Haley, who uh, traced the lineage of a young man who was taken from Africa into slavery by the name of Kunta Kente, and it uh, talks about succeeding generations and uh, things that happened in that family. Uh, but I think we have a great deal of interest in discovering who we are as a people and, and tracing back our roots. I know those of you who have gone on to Ancestry.com or done that little DNA test where they tell you how much uh, Norwegian or African or South American or European or whatever. Uh, it helps us to make a connection with our past. It's part of our history. And so the book of Acts for us is rediscovering our roots as a community of believers in Jesus Christ. You ask the question, why are you here this morning? Is this just a social occasion when we get together once a week and enjoy each other's company and observe a few rituals and then uh, go back out and live any way we want? There is a reason why we're here. And uh, we've discovered that reason uh, in the book of Acts. We just celebrated this past week, Independence Day 2019. And um, I don't want to get into any politics about this because it's not about politics it is about the fact that this country was founded and established based upon a coalition of 13 separate colonies and the reason we call them colonies is because they had a tendency with their own divergent interest to join together in groups that were completely different like the folks down in South Carolina were completely from the folk different from the folks up in Pennsylvania or going up into New England somewhere but somehow they formed this coalition of 13 separate entities forming this one nation that declared a dissolution of the bonds with mother country England enough of King George the third no taxation without representation which I think is a good thing 
Uh, we never have achieved that. But anyway, uh, they, they wrote that Declaration of Independence in which they said uh, that, uh, you know, in certain times people dissolve these bonds uh, and we are recognizing that God bestowed upon us certain inalienable rights. These are God bestowed. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then if you read the whole declaration, they, the, the writers listed a whole list of grievances they had against King George. But I want to say that, although I, don't, I think I'm hesitant at times to admit it, that there is a certain parallel between what we witnessed in history in the establishment of this country with what happened in the establishment of the church that we read about in the book of Acts because it chronicles disparate people, Jews who were raised in a different culture with a different background, with a different set of beliefs, who coalesced with a group of Gentiles, which are the rest of us who are not Jewish, who came from all sorts of cultures and backgrounds, and they united us into this one kingdom that triumphs over all odds and worldly methodologies and has outlasted over 20 plus centuries other kingdoms and empires and governments. So it's helpful to see the church before man enters the picture and starts messing things up because man always does. He enters into the picture and he starts adding things and dividing things and subdividing things and next thing you know we've got hundreds of what we call denominations that differ on various fine points or that might be a means of gaining control in certain areas and we've lost the true picture of what it was originally like. I would liken a little bit to looking at the beginning of the Mississippi River and if you look at the picture that's coming up there this is the mouth of the Mississippi River where it begins and look how small that river looks. My wife and I, as we were coming back last Monday, we crossed from Minnesota into Wisconsin, and we crossed the Mississippi River. And it's a little larger there than it is here, but that's because as we were moving southward, there are other rivers and creeks and, and uh, tributaries that were adding to the volume until you finally get to the Gulf of Mexico, and this is what you end up seeing is a river that looks this expansive. And that's kind of the way that history is. If we want to go back to the source and see it in its purest forms, the book of Acts is it. The book of Acts is significant in the Bible. Uh, how do we get our Bible? A lot of folks conceive that the Bible was somehow one volume that was thrown down from heaven and landed on earth, and now all of us run to it and find out what God wants us to do. But that's not the way it happened at all. As a matter of fact, the Bible is a compilation of 66 books that were written over a period of about 1600 years and they deal with various aspects of God's revelation of himself to us starting with the book of Genesis and ending up with the book of Revelation and they get compiled over the years by a series of councils that determine what would be the canon of God's people and what would not but as we look at this actually there's two volumes the Old Testament and the New Testament and if you were raised Catholic there was a third uh, that uh, was the intertestamentary uh, I can't ever say that word the period between the testaments uh, that the uh, uh, first and second Esdras and Bell and the Dragon and uh, the Maccabees uh, a lot of it's just history but anyway the book of Acts is significant in this canon because of what it reveals to us 
This is actually a two-volume, the second volume of a two-volume work by Luke the physician. Luke, I don't know what medical school he, he graduated from. I probably would not want him doing open-heart surgery on me. But he was probably at the peak of his uh, training uh, during the first century. And the thing about Luke, which uh, tradition has told us, uh, offered these two uh, works, was that he had an eye for detail, which I would expect in a physician. Somebody's looking at something thoroughly. He was also a historian who was documenting things that he had witnessed. And one of the things about a great history, there are several sources for writing a history. You might be looking at old manuscripts. You might be looking at commentaries on things that happened from other authors. But the best sources of history are if you can talk to the original sources, people that were eyewitnesses to that. A few years ago, I read a book about the death march on Bataan. And there was a, they used to have annual reunions of the survivors of the death march of Bataan, and the author of this book, of this history, would go back to those reunions and talk to the survivors and get their stories. And it just made for very compelling reading about what they had experienced, what they'd undergone, and so forth. And Luke was like this. He not only would play a role with the, what who would become the Apostle Paul in uh, establishing churches and spreading the gospel, but he was also an eyewitness who talked to the apostles and he wrote down his observations. And the first volume was the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and again, he's a very meticulous historian and he takes Jesus' genealogy uh, not back from Abraham like Matthew does, but he traces it all the way back to Adam moving forward. And he uh, and he addresses this to a fellow by the name of Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. The name Theophilus literally means friend of God. Uh, and he, he wrote this history. But if you stop where Luke leaves off in his Gospels or any of the Gospels, all we have is an empty tomb and Jesus raised from the dead. And in a couple of the Gospels, he ascends into heaven. And then that's the end of the story. And if we were to skip over that, then go to the epistles... What we'd find is now you're dealing with problems that are arising in churches, and there's no context to it. Acts provides the context. Acts helps us understand why Paul wrote what he did to the church in Rome or what he did to the church in Corinth. So Luke the physician begins his book in Acts, his second volume, with these words, Acts 1, beginning with verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So here he is encapsulating where he left off in his gospel. Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection talking to the apostles, being with them, eating with them, giving them instructions, and then he gets raised into heaven. So the book of Acts is the connecting link between the Gospels and the Epistles. And like I said, the Epistles deal with a lot of the problems that the church had in functioning in the world. Uh, for instance, the letter to Romans. We've had a study in past uh, years about the book of Romans and how in the book church in Rome, it was established by Jewish Christians who had been observing the law while being Christ followers. And then... The Caesar removes all the Jews from Rome, and all that's left in the church in Rome are Gentiles, which is a very different culture, 
very different practices. And they become the majority of the church. And so when the Jews are repatriated to Rome, now you've got this conflict between who's in charge, who's calling the shots, who's saying what's scripture and what's not. And Paul has to deal with that problem. And basically what Romans tells us is God tore down those walls that separated the, Rome, the Jew and the Gentile. And so they'd all become one. So that's one problem he's dealing with. In the church in Corinth, we're dealing with a Greek city that was truly a cosmopolitan city that had all kinds of cultures in it. It would be like going to New York City today in which you would have a, a town that, was like our teenagers went to Chinatown, they, they would have various nationalities that would be grouped in neighborhoods, and you would find a little bit of everything there. And so when you get to a church there, you also have a lot of pagan practices that creeped into the church and so Paul has to address how to deal with those uh, and so you're dealing with that if we only had those books to look at and not the book of Acts we wouldn't know what was being talked about so the Acts is important now there are three basic themes of Acts uh, and the first theme is that the Holy Spirit is the initiator the guide and agent of God's mission to spread the gospel he empowers his servants to ministry and affirms the work by signs and wonders. And we're going to see examples of that through our study. The second theme of Acts is that the people of God are no longer determined by race, ethnicity, religion, the keeping of the law, or geography. All of those things that divided people have been done away with in Christ and now we're united by faith in Jesus Christ and become one people. Even though we have different backgrounds, we may look different, were brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Christ had done. And the third theme is that no amount of persecution can stop the spread of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things I appreciate about the book of Acts is that it's the first century and it wasn't until 325 AD that the government got involved in the church and aligned itself with the church and that messed up a lot of stuff. And so what you're seeing is a movement that is motivated and moving based upon solely the people's faith and adherence to the teachings of Jesus Christ and not by any other means, not by any other motive. And so no amount of persecution that came about as the result of social ostracism or religious bigotry, because the Jews didn't like what was happening, or political Opposition. We'll find by the time we get to the end of Acts that uh, the government of Rome is now entering into the picture and has the power to put a stop to the gospel except for the power of God. And so no amount of persecution can stop the spread of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are four main divisions in Acts, and we'll find it all in one verse in the first chapter, verse 8. In verse 8 it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The church began in Jerusalem. It had been prophesied and it was fulfilled. And that's what we see when we get into the second chapter of Acts. But if you look at a map of the area of, Samaria, of Judea and Samaria where the gospel began, of course Jerusalem was the beginning of it, but we see here Judea and Samaria, now that's a pretty constrained portion of geography. But then if we move to a map of the first century Roman world, we'll see that what began at Jerusalem and spread to Samaria and Judea 
and into the uttermost parts of the earth, we'll see that this gospel goes out uh, in a radical way to an expanding population of the world. So those are the four main divisions. And then eventually Paul's trials as he moves to Rome. So let's go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll begin our study with Acts. I'm just trying to set some background so as we get into the study we understand what's happening. Beginning with verse 4, we see the final day of Jesus with his apostles. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, this is what they've been looking for in the Messiah. They thought the Messiah was going to come and establish a physical kingdom here upon the earth to replace the old glories of Israel. He was going to bring back Jerusalem and reign as a king in Jerusalem. And so they're asking, okay, now, Lord, is this the time that's going to happen? They didn't understand what was about to take place. And Jesus is essentially going to tell them here, don't worry about the details. We'll take care of that. But you go back to Jerusalem and wait for what has been promised. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up from their very, before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Here Jesus is raised bodily up into heaven. Now we accept that if we are followers of Jesus Christ and are here this morning and believe that this is God's word. We accept that, but we've never seen it. Luke talked to eyewitnesses who stood and in amazement with jaws dropped watching Christ ascend back into heaven. And we accept that. And they were looking intently up into the sky in verse 10 as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So here is an expectation, not only that Jesus has left and gone back to heaven, that he's coming again in the same manner. You know, every time we have a thunderstorm coming through, I wonder, is this the day? Out in California right now, they're probably wondering the same thing with all the shaking that's going on out there. But, but here's the promise. Go back to Jerusalem and wait, and in a few days, it's going to be made clear to you. And then at the end, we're not going to read this in detail, but at the end of chapter 1, there's a few housekeeping chores because one of the apostles had gone out and hung himself. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, committed suicide, and so we need a replacement. And so they brought forward two candidates. They cast lots in the lot. The scriptures say fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the twelve. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, as we talk about Pentecost here, 
What's the significance of Pentecost? Pentecost, or the Hebrew word, is Shavuot. See, I know Hebrew. <laughs> that one word. Uh, which was the festival of weeks. And it was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. And this was a, an occasion of pilgrimage for Jews to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And they would go through their ceremonial cleansings in Leviticus 23 and also over in Deuteronomy 16. They are told what kind of sacrifices to offer. They go through a, a purification process, generally at the Pool of Siloam, and go up to the temple and offer these sacrifices. And what you would have is a lot of people, Jews, are con uh, convert, uh, converted to Judaism who come to Jerusalem for this pilgrimage. And they're coming from all over the earth. And uh, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian in the first century, who wrote a history of the Jewish people, said that at times of these kinds of pilgrimages, you would have as many as two to two and a half million people who would be in Jerusalem for that. So Jerusalem gets overpopulated for a period of time. So if you had land and you were renting a parking space for the camper, uh, you would make some money during uh, Pentecost. But you got all kinds of people here on this occasion. This is the first Pentecost after Jesus' uh, crucifixion. And so we have the apostles speaking in other languages. Now I know when we talk about speaking in tongues in terms of religion, uh, there's some kinds of controversy. I remember attending a few years back a service not very far from here at the request of one of our members uh, where they brought in a husband and wife evangelist team and the husband was on stage and he was supposed to be doing the healing and his wife was down in the pit I would say uh, teaching how to speak in tongues. I'm not sure that that's what is being talked about in Acts and the fact of the matter is uh, we knew a young woman who was in a wheelchair bound who was on that stage to be healed and they kept moving her back uh, as the service progressed until there was probably nobody left and uh, they prayed over and told her she needed to wait three days well she never got out of that wheelchair the irony is the lift gate on her van <laughs> did not work and her, the, my friend and I had to pick her wheelchair up put her back in her van um, and I ran into her Martins a few uh, months later and uh, because of that experience she was no longer a believer which is a sad thing but speaking in tongues here is not talking about some kind of religious babble we're talking about something that was understood, and it was understood by a great many people, and now we'll notice how they understood it, beginning with the uh, fifth verse of Acts 2. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now the miracle to me is that as the apostles are speaking, something is happening in what is being heard and they hear them in their own languages. It's almost like those who sit at the UN and they have the little headphones on and they hear the translation in that. But anyways, they're utterly amazed and asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? We should be hearing a Galilean dialect. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then it begins to enumerate Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, 
What does this mean? Now they knew they were all Galileans, but they understood what they were saying. What does this mean? Well, you always got one in the crowd who comes up with a very irrational explanation. And so there we have it in verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, These men have had too much wine. I don't know how you get fluent in another language just by drinking. But Peter's going to counter that in a moment, that argument, by telling them that it's only 9 in the morning. So this can't be because of the wine. Now, I've driven down Michigan Street at 9 in the morning, and I would say that there are people who do drink uh, to excess before then. But anyway, the thing is that something notable has happened here. And the rationalization of them getting drunk is ridiculous. So Peter goes on. Now remember who Peter is as he makes this address. He does it in a very eloquent way. But he's just a rugged fisherman who had fished the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he, he did not have formal education in the laws of Judaism. He was not a rabbinic student like Saul of Tarsus, as we'll find out, was. He was a fisherman. We would call him a layman who is being directed by the Holy Spirit to give this wonderful uh, declaration to these people who are watching what's happening. So verse 14, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So he goes to the Old Testament prophets, and he points out what Joel has written. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. He's quoting Joel here. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's saying what you're witnessing here on this day of Pentecost is what Joel has spoken of hundreds of years ago. And then he goes to something that they all knew. What had taken place among them by Jesus. He says in verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now you know he's talking to people in Jerusalem, and you know he's talking to people in that crowd who had been eyewitnesses to Jesus healing people who had been blind, to Jesus who had healed people who had been lame, to Jesus who had actually raised people from the dead. They had seen this with their own eyes. This is a marvelous thing to me to, to try and comprehend. That people who had witnessed such things could be so divorced from the reality that they thought, nah, there's something else going on here. We just didn't see it as it really was. But Peter is saying, you saw the proofs yourself. And so he's laying out the case. Not only did Joel speak about what you're seeing here today, but you, you, you know that Jesus that God approved and attested to by what you saw him do? This man, he says in verse 23, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. You thought you were doing what you were wanting to do, but actually this was God's plan all along. And you, with the help of wicked men, the Roman government, 
put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But he could not be held by death. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So this had been God's plan all along. Yes, Jesus suffered terrible crucifixion. But God had the power to free him from that death. And this was God's plan all along. And then he goes back to the Old Testament to the greatest king that Israel had ever had, David. Beginning with verse 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One's seed decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fulfill me with joy in the presence, uh, fill me with joy in your presence. Now, was David writing about himself? Was he saying that my body will never see decay because I know that you're going to uh, set me at your right hand? Well, Peter goes on to announce something that they also knew. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And if you go to Matthew's genealogy and if you go to Luke's genealogy, you'll find that Jesus can be traced back through the lineage to David the king. He was of the tribe of Judah. That God had promised on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. And so that's what Peter is laying out as his logical explanation of what is happening and what conclusion it should lead to. And this is where we come to the declaration, not of independence, but the declaration of dependence upon the plan of God to establish this kingdom. Jesus was the promised Messiah because in verse 36, here's this declaration. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What he's saying is you're guilty of killing Jesus. We are guilty of killing Jesus. Not only did Judas betray Jesus, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion. But God has made him Lord and Messiah, Lord and King. God raised him victorious from the grave. And then continuing in verse 37, we get the reaction from the crowd. I wish I could preach and get the reaction that Peter got. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? If I could preach in such a way to convict of sin so that I got a response saying, what shall we do to remedy this? I would think I belong in the Hall of Fame of Preachers. But I don't belong in the Hall of Fame of Preachers. I'm even a poor substitute. But Peter was anointed by the Spirit of God, and he's convicted a lot of people. And so he gives the answer when they ask, what shall we do? 
verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. So he says to them, here's the remedy. Yes, you're guilty, but here's how you can make this right. Repent, turn, be baptized, make this public proclamation of your allegiance to Christ. And this prescription is not only for you, but it's for your children, and it's for those folks back in the 21st century that we don't even know about yet. It's for you and me. This is our declaration, not of independence, but of dependence upon the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, when this began, this movement that starts on the day of Pentecost, do you know how many Jesus followers there were left in Jerusalem? About 120. You have the 12 apostles and plus other disciples who had remained together there in Jerusalem. But the scripture says that after Peter preached this sermon, they ask, what do we need to do? He tells them, verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000, from 120 to 3,000, just like that. That's the power of the Spirit of God. That's the power of conviction. That's the power of God's Word working in the lives of those who are searching for God. Those Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem on that day were not people who were bad in the ways of the world. They were people who had gotten misinformed about how it meant to follow God and to let God lead their lives. They didn't intend to de destroy the Messiah's life, but the fact of the matter is they became instruments in God's plan. And so what we have here is this promise to the first century, to the 21st century, that this is the birth of a kingdom. And it's a kingdom to which we have been called to immigrate. There are no borders. There are no walls. There's only this call to repent and be baptized and follow the way of God. And that kingdom will never end. This government, which we celebrated this past week at its inauguration will someday end. Maybe sooner rather than later. We don't know. But there's been no human government that ever lasted for eternity. And this human government's no different. And there may be one coming after it. There may be another after it. We don't know. But this kingdom that God has called us to, this kingdom that has been inaugurated not with the firing of a gun, but with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this kingdom will never end. And so let me close with prayer, please. Holy God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this declaration of dependence that Peter gave to us. We pray, Father, that you would bless us as we study this book together, Father, that we will see your wisdom and your will in all of this. And Father, help us to see how that we fit into your kingdom in this place. And help us to be the church of Jesus Christ here on the south side of South Bend. Help us to be your representatives. Help us to be faithful in the discharge of your will. And we ask this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.